Tonight, I'd like to start our lesson by talking about heroes. Everybody has heroes, and every culture has heroes. That's been true for as long as humans have been writing histories. We know all the way back in ancient Greece that the Greeks had many heroes. Heroes like Hector and Achilles, Hercules and Odysseus, great military leaders, men of valor, demigods who did great deeds. And of course, they had the philosopher heroes that they admired, people like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. We, as Americans today, we have our own national and cultural heroes, of course. Some of these are political and military persons, like great presidents of the past, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, great military leaders like Douglas MacArthur. We don't just admire these heroes from the past, we memorialize them. We carve their images into stone. We make statues of them. We put their likeness on stamps, on currency, to remember them, to admire them. And we have other national heroes, like the great icons of the civil rights movement, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis. These two are people that we remember, their legacies and their persons we admire. And we have plenty of cultural heroes today, not just political leaders, but we have heroes from the entertainment industry. We have heroes in business, heroes who are sports figures, people in science. All these different people we have as cultural heroes. And of course, the church has its own heroes. We call them saints. We remember them, we commemorate them, we tell their stories so that we can keep their example alive with us today. And of course, each of us in our own life, we have our own personal heroes. One of my greatest heroes, personally, is my grandfather, John Robert Braun. He was a chemistry professor, a professor at the Citadel, a military college in South Carolina. He was there for decades. He wasn't terribly successful in his professional career. He never published anything that brought him great notoriety. He never rose through the ranks to become a senior professor, but he left a lasting legacy. When I was growing up as a child, my grandfather embodied for me what it meant to be a man who loved his family, a man who faithfully and selflessly dedicated himself to the lives of other people. He was my hero. I've been using this term heroes, but we could also use other terms, role models. Philosophers like to use the word exemplar. Exemplars for philosophers are people that we admire and people that we emulate, people that we want to become like. And philosophers and psychologists have called attention to just how important these exemplars are in our lives, that they play a strong role not only for us as children, but as adults, because they embody ideals for us. They give us models for what it is to be excellent, 
what it is to be good, what it is to be strong and courageous, what a life well lived looks like. We all have these exemplars, these heroes, and we find them in the Bible too. And in the book of Proverbs, the very end of the book of Proverbs, we have one of these heroes, the noble woman, as she's called in Proverbs 31. And this noble woman is described in a poem. It's an acrostic poem. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and there are 22 verses in this poem from chapter 31, verses 10 through 31, because each verse corresponds to one of the Hebrew letters. And they tell us all about this woman and her character, what she is like. And you have to ask yourself, why tell us about this woman? Why describe this hero? Why conclude the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom this way? Is this really just advice for a young man to tell him what a good wife would be? Or is this maybe a model for what a good Christian godly housewife ought to look like? Well, that's certainly how Proverbs 31 has sometimes been interpreted by people. And it's caused some difficulty. There's one Christian comedian who wrote a book recently about just how much the example of the Proverbs 31 woman overwhelmed her. She called it Confessions of a Proverbs 32 Woman. And in that book, she wrote a letter to the Proverbs 31 woman. And here's what she said. I'm here on earth, and I wanted to inform you that you've been inspiring women and stressing them out for centuries. You are an icon, and you have your very own chapter in the Holy Bible. A lot of women read about you and think that they could never measure up to all you were. Nobody has ever called me a Proverbs 31 woman. This is the confession of someone who finds this Proverbs 31 woman not just to be an example, but to be an impossible example and kind of a burden. But I think this rests on a misunderstanding of what Proverbs is trying to do with its description of this woman. Yes, we are meant to admire her and to emulate her as we read about her. She is an exemplar. But the description of the woman in Proverbs 31, she is not simply an exemplar for women. And she's not a standard, an impossible standard, that we're meant to measure other people by. No, this noble woman, she is the embodiment of wisdom itself. Everything that Proverbs has been describing up until this point in the book, now it describes through the example of a single woman. And we are meant as readers to seek her and to find her. The language that's used of seeking and finding this woman is the same language that Proverbs has been using of seeking and finding wisdom itself. So she, for us, is meant to be an embodiment of wisdom. And tonight we're going to look at her and her example and ask, what is she like? What is this woman, this noble woman, this exemplar, this embodiment of wisdom? What is she like? And what does she teach us about living wisely.
I have three observations that I want to make about this woman. The first is that she shows her wisdom in action, in what she does. This woman is kind of countercultural in many ways, the, the wisdom that she embodies. Not only because Proverbs is using a woman in a very patriarchal ancient society as the most admirable example of wise living. That in and of itself is going against the grain. No, but she's also countercultural because not only what she is praised for, but what she's not praised for. She's not, for instance, praised for her beauty or for her wit, like many women are in that culture and in today. Verse 30 of Proverbs 31 says, Grace is a lie, and beauty mere breath. A Lord-fearing woman, it is she who is praised. She's also not praised for her education or for her knowledge or for the opinions that she has about all the questions of the day, what she thinks about the pressing questions of the day. And this too, I think, is countercultural because sometimes we associate wisdom with just having extensive knowledge. And we associate the wise person, the sage, with the person who has all the right opinions on controverted questions. And this can lead us to a habit of what John Henry Newman, that great 19th century Anglican Catholic theologian, what John Henry Newman called being viewy. John Henry Newman wrote a novel called Loss and Gain. And in the novel, near the beginning, he describes two young men who come to Oxford and they're starting their studies there. Listen to how he describes one of those characters. Sheffield, on the other hand, without possessing any real view of things more than Charles, was, at this time, fonder of hunting for views and more in danger of taking up false ones. That is, he was viewy in a bad sense of the word. So this character, Sheffield, he wants to always have the right view, the right opinion. He looks out of how to enter into debate on public questions and, and issues that are being argued over in the public square. And we too feel this pressure today, don't we? I mean, just get on social media, on Facebook or on Twitter. All of us, it seems, feel the need to weigh in on the big political social questions of our day or on anything that might require us to have a strong opinion. And sometimes we associate this with wisdom. That's what it is to be wise, to have right opinions on things, to know lots of things. But that is not true of the Proverbs 31 woman. We learn nothing about her knowledge or opinions on big questions. What we do read about her is what she does. Here are some of the things that Proverbs describes her doing. She seeks. She works. She rises. She provides. She considers. She buys. She perceives, she makes, she dresses, she delivers, she laughs, 
she fears. Craig Bartholomew and Ryan O'Dowd, who are two scholars of wisdom literature and have written a study just on this woman, they describe her wisdom by saying that her wisdom is not an intellectual or abstract form of wisdom reserved for philosopher kings, but a particular active and loving way of living in the world made by the one true God. So that's my first observation about this woman and what she has to teach us about wisdom, that wisdom shows itself in action, that it's a particular active and loving way of living in this world that God has made. Here's my second observation. This woman, this noble woman, she shows her wisdom by the way she values things. She values things properly. She knows the value of things. Take, for instance, what is said about her in verse 13. She seeks wool and flax. The verb here describes someone who is on the hunt, searching for the right materials. She knows how to find good materials that she needs to use. And then in verse 16, we're told that she considers a field and she buys it. She looks at a piece of land. She knows what it can produce. She knows what it can give forth and she sees its value and she purchases it. And then in verse 21 and 22, the author describes how she makes certain things. And it says that this woman clothes her household in scarlet and that her clothing itself is fine linen and purple. And this mention of scarlet and purple and fine linen here, this is not just an indication of luxury, it's an indication of durability, of making goods that will last, of knowing the value of fine and durable clothing. Similarly, in verse 24, we're told that she makes linen garments and sells them. This woman seeking wool and flax, perceiving the value of land, knowing the value of these fine and durable clothing, she shows her wisdom and what she values. I think my favorite description of this aspect of her character is actually verse 18. In the ESV, which is the Bible we usually read together, the translation is that she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. And this is a good translation, but I really like the translation by the Hebrew scholar Robert Alter. And here's how he renders verse 18. He says, this woman understands that her wares are good. I like that word good. Because in the Hebrew, that's exactly what it is. It's the word tov. This woman sees what she has made and she takes delight in it. It is good. It is tov. And in doing so, she shows us that her wisdom reflects the activity of God himself who takes delight in what he makes. One of the best descriptions that I have found of this, this way that God takes delight 
in what he makes. It's by the Episcopal priest, um, the, the late Episcopal priest, Robert Farrar Capon, who also wrote a cookbook and reflect theologically on the act of cooking itself and the enjoyment of food. Here's what he says about onions. I really like this. God likes onions, therefore they are. The fit, the colors, the smell, the tensions, the tastes, the textures, the lines, the shapes are a response, not to some forgotten decree that there may as well be onions as turnips, but to his present delight, his intimate and immediate joy in all you have seen and in the thousand other wonders you do not even suspect. Capon's description of God's delight in the goodness of onions could very well be used of this woman in Proverbs 31. And what we learn from her example is that wisdom, living well in God's world, is about rightly knowing the value of things, seeing what is truly good, taking delight in the goodness of creation. And this is a word I think we really need to hear today because as many people note, we live in a kind of throwaway culture. We buy a lot of things, we use them up, we consume them quickly, and then we move on to the next thing. We use words like, planned obsolescence, to talk about how often we manufacture goods simply with the mindset that they'll be used up quickly and that we'll have to move on to something else. And all of this works against us knowing really the value of things that are good. Do we really know the value of material things? Do we take delight in land and what it can produce, in clothing that is durable, in the goods of good food? Do we properly judge the goodness of fine workmanship, things that last? One of my favorite possessions that I have right now is a bookcase that's in my bedroom. I love it for two reasons. Number one, I love it because it is well-crafted and very durable. It's made of pure walnut. Even the shelves of the bookcase are made of walnut. And it has a beautiful oil on it that brings out the color and the vibrancy of the grain. The lines are beautiful and it will last a long time. But I also love it because it was made by my dad who's become a woodworker himself and who's learned and spent time knowing how to select the best wood, just like that woman in Proverbs 31, to bring out what wood can do in a piece of furniture or when finely crafted, to pay attention to how joints ought to be put together, to use things that not only show off their God-given beauty, but things that will last. There is great wisdom in that. So we learn from this lady, this noble woman, that wisdom consists in valuing things properly. And the third observation I wanna make is that we learn from her example that wisdom consists not just in the way that we live in activity, not just in 
knowing the proper value of things. But wisdom consists in work, work specifically done for the benefit, for the good of others. This woman works. She works tirelessly. She works hard. She dedicates herself to work, but it's not for herself. She does it to benefit others. She does it first and foremost to benefit her own family. Verses 11 and 12 tell us that the heart of this woman's husband trusts in her, that he will have no lack of gain because she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And later on, we read about how she does good to her children. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household. She looks well to the ways of her household. This woman's activity of work, benefiting others, it begins at home. And I think that there's an important lesson here as well about the way that, that we love, the way that we benefit others, and who we owe obligation to first. There's a character in Charles Dickens' novel, Bleak House. Her name is Mrs. Jellyby. And you might have read this novel before and know who I'm talking about, but Mrs. Jellyby is an English woman who is obsessed with this single tribe in Africa that has great needs. And she admirably dedicates herself to helping them. The problem is Mrs. Jellybee spends so much time and so much attention on this tribe in Africa that she completely neglects those who are right in front of her, her own family. She fails to love them. She fails to care for their needs. She fails to pay attention to what it is that they're struggling with and what they're going through, all because she's so focused on people who are far away. And this is an example of what Charles Dickens liked to call telescopic philanthropy, like looking through a telescope, seeing these giant important needs far away and neglecting those who are right in front of you. And we don't see that in this woman. What we see is a woman who cares for those who are closest to her. And this is something that we also learn from the example of Mother Teresa. She learned the importance of love and working for others by watching the example of her own mother, her own exemplar. And as she was reflecting later in her life on this call to love others, this woman who had dedicated herself for her entire life to caring for those in need, this is what she says. In order for love to be genuine, it has to be above all a love for our neighbor. We must love those who are nearest to us and our own family. And from there, love spreads toward whoever may need us. Mother Teresa is a woman who is also wise and has shown her wisdom by the way that she lived, by her dedication and hard work for the benefit of others. And she recognized that the way that our love is formed is by paying attention to those who are right in front of us, to our neighbors, to our own family, and from there, looking out and seeing the needs of others. And it's important to note that 
This woman in Proverbs 31, she does not just love her family. Her work, her craftsmanship, her seeking out wool and flax, the finest materials, the clothes that she makes, all of this work also benefits those who are in need in her own community. In verse 20, we're told that she opens her hand to the poor and that she reaches out her hands to the needy. And what she reaches out to them, what she gives them, isn't simply secondhand charity, it's the work of her own hands. It's the fine goods that she has crafted. She works for her family, and through that love, she spreads out her hands to those in need. 1 John chapter 3 tells us to love not in word or speech, but in deed and in truth. Don't just love people by having the right opinions, saying the right things, talking about issues in a certain way. Love people in what you do. Love people in truth. And in Proverbs 31, we find an amazing example of that. A woman who loves not in word or speech, but in deed and in truth. A woman whose wisdom consists not in her extensive knowledge, not in how philosophical she is, not in the opinions that she takes up on controverted questions of her day, but in the way that she lives her life, in the way that she values things, in the way that she works for the benefit of those in need. Do we admire this woman? When you read about her in Proverbs 31, do you admire her? You're meant to. That's what the description is there for. It's meant to capture your imagination, to give you an example of a woman who is beautiful, not because of her appearance, but because she embodies wisdom itself, because she lives well in the world. So do you admire her? Do you wish to be like her? That is the call of wisdom to us. Thanks again for joining with me tonight. May God use the example of this noble woman in Proverbs 31 to inspire all of us to lives of greater wisdom, to living well in this world he has created.